Welcome to How Leaders Lead, where every week you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I break down the key learnings so that by the end of the episode, you'll have something simple you can apply as you develop into a better leader. That's what this podcast is all about. Today's guest is Stephen M. R. Covey. As the CEO of Covey Leadership Center, he built the largest leadership development company in the world and orchestrated the successful merger of Franklin Covey. He's also the New York Times bestselling author of the excellent book, Speed of Trust. Now listen, if you've ever felt like your business just didn't move fast enough, you're going to love this conversation. Stephen believes that there's one secret ingredient in a business that can help a team move faster and be more successful. That secret ingredient is trust. And it makes sense, right? If our team members feel like they're always jumping through hoops and being micromanaged, they're never going to do their best work. And they're certainly not going to get their work done quickly. The thing is, as leaders, it's up to us to extend that trust to our teams so that they can go out and do amazing things. And obviously, that's easier said than done. How can we trust our team members more while still minimizing risk and keeping people accountable? Keep listening because Steven is going to help us learn to extend trust the right way. So here's my conversation with my good friend and soon to be yours, Stephen M. R. Covey. first met you at the University of Missouri where you met with students all day and then that night you gave a fantastic speech for the Novak Leadership Institute. Really appreciated that. How you been? Hey I, David, it's great to be with you. I'm doing fantastic and and uh, actually that that night at University of Missouri to speak at your institute was uh, a real treat and thrill for me to be speaking in front of you because if you remember I told a couple of your stories, and it was fun to do it in front of you to, to make sure I got it right. So I'm doing terrific. How many uh, speaking engagements do you have a year, Stephen? I probably do around a hundred or so, and <laughs> yeah, quite a few. I'm, I'm usually out every week, you know, three or four um, a week, and there might be a few weeks where I don't go out. I try to get some writing done, some other things, but. It kind of goes in spurts. Yeah, yeah, that's great. You know, Stephen, I always uh, like to start at the beginning. Can you tell us about your your upbringing? Yeah, well, you know, I came from a great family situation, so I, I, I recognize I was, uh, you know, really blessed because I had a wonderful father and mother. And and you know, my my father is is Dr. Stephen R. Covey. He wrote the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. So I grew up kind of learning the seven habits in our home. You know, before my dad had written the book, before he'd gone out and was teaching it, he was testing it with us kids. We were the guinea pigs. And, and uh, you know, so the positive of that is I, I kind of learn, learned just growing up some of these great principles that that uh, I took for granted at the time, but it was only later that I realized that, you know, I was getting trained by a great leadership, uh, you know, thinker Right there in my own home, growing up, and I didn't know it until later. And and uh, but but I had a great uh, environment growing up, and and uh, um, you know worked in a number of different places, and kind of tried to find my way. And I, I ended up uh, teaming back up with my my dad, and and uh, and tried to build at the time the Covey Leadership Center to become kind of a, a global firm focusing on leadership development everywhere. And I. I became involved with that and kind of worked my way up and then ultimately ran it. I want to get back to your childhood a little bit. You okay. said your dad taught you some really important principles. Was there one that really stuck out? Yeah. Um, it, it, it's, it's a famous story in The Seven Habits, and he calls it green and clean. And, and the whole idea was, you know, I was just a young boy. I think I was six or seven at the time. And he was trying to teach me responsibility, teach all the kids responsibility. And so he asked me to take care of our lawn, our grass. And we had a big, you know, lawn. And this is back in the days before automatic sprinklers. And, and so you had to manually do it. And, and so he said, son, your job is green and clean. And he said, no, look, green is the color of our neighbor's yard, you know, because ours wasn't very green <laughs> under his stewardship. He says, so that's the color we, we want. We want the yard to be green. We want it to be clean. And then he kind of 
taught me what clean looked like. And again, I'm six or seven, so I, I'm just a young boy trying to learn these concepts. And he said, no, look, this is your job. I'm giving you this responsibility. And he trained me over two weeks. And then he asked me, are you ready? I said, I'm ready, Dad. So he turned it over to me. And, and uh, well, I did nothing <laughs> for the first several days. And this was in the middle of the summer and there was scorching heat everywhere and the lawn was turning yellow by the day. And for like four or five, six days, I did nothing. And my dad just said he wanted to kind of take the job right back from me and say, you know, he's just too young. I can't do this. But he stayed with it. And, and he'd set up an agreement that we'd kind of walk around once a week to see how the yard was going as part of the stewardship. And so he said, hey, Sam, why don't we walk around and see how the yard is going? So we started to walk around and I looked around and the, and the yard was really yellow and it was cluttered and messy. And I started to break down and cry and said, well, dad, this is just so hard. <laughs> and he said, well, what's hard, son? You haven't done one thing yet. And, <laughs> but I'll tell you, David, what was hard was I was learning to take responsibility. I was learning to you know, own that job, to take it on. And, and, and I said, well, will, will you help me, dad? He said, hey, my agreement was I'd help you if I have time. I said, do you have time? He goes, I've got time. So I ran in the house and I got a couple of sacks, garbage sacks. And I said, dad, would you take this garbage sack and pick up that garbage over there? <laughs> because it makes me want to vomit. And he goes, I'm your helper. I'll do whatever you say. And it was at that moment I realized, wait a minute. Look, I'm bossing my dad. I'm, I'm asking him to do this and he's doing it. And I realized this is my job. And as a seven-year-old boy, I took responsibility for that job. And and I only asked for help a couple more times the rest of the summer. And from that point on, the job, the, the lawn was green and it was clean. And, and, uh, and I took care of it. And, you know, my father taught that in the seven habits as kind of a win-win a performance agreement or stewardship delegation. But I was a seven-year-old boy. I didn't know what those terms meant. But here's what I didn't know. I felt trusted. I felt my father trusted me. I didn't want to let him down. And, and so it's a great illustration of kind of how I learned trust. I learned trust firsthand from my father extending trust to me as a seven-year-old to take a responsibility based upon outcomes, green and clean. You know, so there's, there's a standard, there's an expectation, but I was accountable. I judged myself against the standards, green and clean, and I owned it. And I rose to the occasion as a seven-year-old. And my point is, if, if you can do it as a seven-year-old, then we can all do it as a 17 or 70-year-old. You know, we can learn to take responsibility. But the key is he trusted me and I rose to the occasion and responded to the trust. Your father was obviously a world-renowned leader and, and you know, you, you uh, learned a lot from him. But, you know, a lot of times in family businesses, you know, people really have a difficult time following their father's footsteps. Was that something that you had to wrestle with? Yeah, it really was. I, I genuinely even debated, do I do this? And I'd done a few other things. I'd, I'd worked for a short stint on Wall Street. I worked in real estate development. And so the, the decision to kind of join up with my father was a real kind of wrestle because I didn't want to just, you know, be defined by him. I wanted to kind of carve out my own identity. But I felt like I, I really, this was before the Seven Habits book was published. And I just knew this book was going to have impact on people, and I could I could see it because I'd seen I'd grown up with it. I'd seen the impact in in a smaller setting, and I knew that once this got out, it was going to have a big impact. So I decided to do it. But I will say this, David, that the first you know first twenty years of my career, I kind of carved out my own identity within the firm, which was I went down the business side. I you know in in learning the business and selling. In, in, deliver, in, in kind of working with clients. And, but I was clearly on the business side of leading teams and, and building the organization. I didn't want to, to, to teach or to write because I thought I'd be just a poor man's comparison to my father. So I, I, you know, I, felt, I felt I needed to establish my own identity. And I did it by saying, look, I'm going to learn how to turn this, th these ideas into a business. And, and then when I did that, I had, you know, we had some success and we built this into a big firm. And it was only after kind of that had happened when I finally realized, you know what? I also have something to say. And, and, um, and it was all around trust and how trust is, is 
just indispensable for everything and that that we're kind of assuming it, taking it for granted. We need to become intentional about it. And once I felt I had something to say, then I shifted my career. I, di I didn't care anymore about worrying about being compared to my father and being a poor man's version. I just felt like I finally, I have something to say now. And that's when I kind of shifted my career from being a business leader to trying to be a thought leader. And I went into writing and speaking and kind of where I'm, what I'm doing now. So I kind of had two careers along the way. So you, you really differentiated yourself from your father as a business leader. And, and, you know, for our listeners out there, you, you when you took over as a CEO, you had a company that was valued at about 2.4 million and you grew the shareholder value to $160 million, which is, you know, fantastic performance. And I know, Stephen, you write about the importance of giving the why before the what. Um, how did you use this tenant to grow your business so dramatically? Yeah, we, we, used, we were so clear about our mission and, and um, you know, that, you know, why we were doing what we were doing. That, you know, it wasn't just leadership development. It was we were trying to impact people and organizations everywhere to be able to better fulfill um, their missions and who they are and what they were about. Our mission was so strong. We were very mission-driven. In fact, so mission-driven, David, that sometimes we got involved in a lot of hobbies, <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of, you know, important, useful things that we could never make money at, but they were good at making a difference in the world. And, and we kind of had to learn that if, if we're not making money as a business, we're not going to have a mission. So our, our mantra became no margin, no mission. <laughs> and, and, you know, and we had to, we had to focus on the margin. We had to run ourselves like a business that had a great mission. And, and, and so we said, look, it's not either, or it's not, Hey, we, we got a great mission or we run ourselves like a business. No, it's, it's, and it's, we are a business with a mission. A mission driven business is extraordinary, but the mission is the why why we're, we're doing this, why we're all about. That inspired everybody. And we just also had to discipline ourselves into also being a good business that was responsible because then we would have more of a mission. And, and that was a learning that sounds obvious, but when you're very mission-driven, you can kind of find yourselves going down a lot of paths, many of which you can't make money at because it can fulfill the mission, but you, but you can't sustain it. And so kind of learning to be a mission-driven business was critical. And so we had plenty of why. We needed to then learn that, you know, how to how to run ourselves as a good business too. So that was kind of a big learning. And that's what I tried to bring to, to the firm to balance my father being so mission-oriented, who just wanted to do everything for everyone. And I tried to say, yeah, let's do it in a way that we can also sustain ourselves. And during that process, did you have a defining moment or event that really changed your leadership trajectory? Um, yeah, I remember one right when I first got in, David, as as the CEO of Cubby Leadership Center, I was nine days on the job and we met with our bank and the bank said, you know what, Stephen, we're going to have to pull our line of credit. <laughs> and, and, um, and, you know, and we depended upon that. But what had happened is, again, we were so mission driven and had been that we were involved in all these things, not making money. And what it, we'd had 11 straight years of negative cash flow with low margins, with a lot of debt. Our debt to equity ratio was 223 to one in total liabilities, tangible net worth, and yet high growth. So do the math on that. You know, high growth with low margins, with negative cash flow, with a lot of debt. You know, we're going to grow ourselves right out of business. And, and, the, and the bank said, we can't be left holding the bag. We got to pull the line. This is not working. And, and so, you know, we negotiated. I said, look, I'm brand new. And, and I, my, my focus is really going to be on trying to turn this into a business, not just a mission. And uh, we're going to do all these things. And, and we negotiated and the bank agreed that they would keep the line if we all signed personal guarantees. So we did. And that's no fun to be on personal guarantees, but you do what you have to do. But then we had to kind of, you know, the defining moment was we had to perform. We had to deliver. You know, it wasn't enough that... We were good people and had a great mission and, and, and we had a good value proposition for our customers. I mean, that was all great, but the bank didn't fully trust us because we didn't deliver. We had, we were violating, we had like 17 bank covenants and we were in, in violation of 
10 of the 17. And so they needed, they needed to see performance and growth. And so we kind of, we, we collaborated and we said, look, we're in too many businesses. We're in too many hobbies. The mission is, is so strong that we're doing too many things we can't make money at. We've got to define it. We've got to focus. We've got to become profitable. And what we really did was we, we pared down. We became clear about what we would, could do well and make money at. We defined a business model that worked for us. We had a great value proposition for customer customers, but didn't know how to make money ourselves. We learned how to do that. And then we built trust. We built trust internally. We built trust with our partners and with our customers. And from that came referral business, repeat business, and it changed everything. And, and, and we improved and our margins improved and we started paying down the debt. And we went back to the bank, you know, sometime later, they said, we like what we see a lot. You're making great progress. Then we went back about a year later and they said, hey, we love what we see. You've made extraordinary progress. You're profitable. You've paid down this debt. And then they said, Stephen, we want to double your line of credit, you know, which is trust for the bank. And, you know, but it was just a, a learning that, that you got to perform. You got to deliver. It's not enough to be good people with good cause if you don't deliver. We had to be in that mission-driven business. And when we became that, then we earned the trust of the bank. And from that, we could really have an impact in the world because now we were viable, we were sustainable. And that was kind of a key learning, not only for me, but for our entire firm. Great. You know, you, you talk about the importance of feeding your strengths and starving your, your weaknesses. It, you know, how have you done this with your own personal leadership? Yeah, well, um, the whole idea is that, you know, none of us are perfect at everything, but if we can, if you can just, you know, build a team a complementary team so that we're not all the same. If we're all the same, then not all of us are needed. But we have differences and those differences compensate for someone's weakness, for my own weakness. And so I learned to kind of build a, a complementary leadership team for me that where I'd bring in people that were members of the team that saw the world differently and saw opportunities differently and had different strengths than I did and rather than being threatened by that, the whole idea was that's where there's power. That's where synergy takes place. That's where creativity and innovation takes place from our differences if we trust each other. And you know, differences are strengths when you trust each other. And building a complementary team where you run with your strengths and you organize yourself to make your, your weaknesses irrelevant. So if I'm not good at certain things, I bring in a team member who is. And sometimes people can be you know, threatened by differences because someone else got a great strength that they don't have. And, and the whole idea of seeing that is, that's part of why we're a team. That's why we work as teams is we're complementary, you know, PLE. And, and, and so we complement each other and we help each other. We fill in gaps, we fill in holes. And it's through those differences that become one team with great strength and great ability to, to, to be creative and innovative. You know, there's, it was part, uh, Robert Porter Lynch is an expert on innovation, and he said, innovation flourishes when there's a collision of differences in an environment of trust. So a great team has people that, that maybe bring different perspectives, different, you know, they have different strengths, different weaknesses. They come together as a team. If they trust each other, those differences truly are strengths that can be turned into creativity and innovation. If they don't trust each other, they can often divide people. And then you're not really a team. You're just a group of people working on a project. You know, Stephen, a lot of writers have a lot of, you know, they don't really have a lot of practical business experience. You know, how much did being CEO of your own company shape your book on the speed of trust? Enormously. Because I saw it firsthand. You know, I, right out of the gates, I, we were working with a, a supplier for a certain product. We had two suppliers for the same product. And one we had high trust with, one not so much. And I looked at how with the one, everything would happen fast. There's high trust and we'd get a great product. It was low cost. With the other, the trust was lower. We had to put in place all these inspections and processes to make sure everything was okay. And I'd say to my team, who's paying for all of this? <laughs> they said, well, we are. And I said, well, why are we working with them? It's, it costs more. They said, well, we got to have a redundant source. And I remember saying, boy, boy, there sure is a high cost of low trust, isn't there? You know, and I started to see that 
just from a practical standpoint, when there's high trust, you move fast, it's low cost. When there's low trust, it takes you longer, it costs you more. So just practical, so obvious, just right in front of me, working with suppliers, vendors, and I can see it with partners, see it with customers, see it with their own people. And, and I began to see the world through this lens and it came from my own practice, my own experience. So you know, everything I learned about speed of trust, I learned kind of on the job. And then, then I validated it with research and augmented it with my client work with, and working with organizations. But I'll tell you what, it, it comes back to my own experience, like with the bank, you know, they didn't trust us because we were nice people. They trusted us because we performed. And until we performed, they weren't going to trust us. And, and you know, and, and um, so it informed me on everything. And, and that's what I think is, I hope is maybe part of what I bring to this trust conversation is everyone knows trust is important. I'm trying to show how practical, how tangible it is in terms of the impact that it has on every dimension of leadership and of relationships, of teams, of organizations. And I draw that from my experience, but then also how learnable trust is. It's something you can move the needle on, get better at intentionally. And again, that comes from my own experience and you know, validated by research. What would be a, a, a really you know, clear, tangible example of how you built trust in your own company? Well, I remember one of the biggest challenges we had was when we did a, our merger and we merged Covey Leadership Center with Franklin Quest you know, two great firms independently coming together, forming Franklin Covey. We'd been arts competitors for years. So when we merged these companies, even though we had good people on both sides, there was distrust and people didn't trust each other. And, you know, they, they, they saw the world through different lenses. We'd been, again, arch competitors. This is like Coke and Pepsi, you know, it was, it was coming together and, you know, pe people saw the world differently and there was just distrust and there was literally tribal trust. Half the company trusted half and half trusted the other half and no one trusted each other. And I remember coming in and realizing nothing's going to happen. We're not making much progress. We're, we're trapped internally focused and not focusing on the marketplace because we don't trust each other. And we had to kind of learn how we've got to intentionally build this trust. I like to say that the, you know, there's an expression that grew out of the Vietnam War that says that the first casualty of war is truth. Well, the first casualty of mergers is trust, unless you're intentional about building it. And, and trust had gone down. So I remember, you know, I'm president of this, uh, the, of the Merge Training and Education Unit, the, the important engine of the company. And I remember going into this first conference and realizing half the company trusted me, the Covey half, and half didn't, the Franklin half. At the time, that's how we saw our, we, we you, know, you know, viewed the world through those lenses. And I could kind of dance around it, act like it's not there. And I remember going in, David, and just saying, look, if I go in and just talk about strategy, you know, some people will like it and some won't. I ought to get real. So I went in there and I just said, look, I can talk about the strategy, what we're going to do. But if you'd like, I could talk about what you'd like to talk about. I took a risk and I, I made myself vulnerable. I'll bet that people want to talk about this merger and what's happening and and uh, who's making the decisions and are they qualified? And I, I teed things up that everyone was thinking, but no one dared say out loud. And, and I tried to make it safe to get real. And I'll tell you what, I was supposed to take an hour. This was a big consultant conference of all our consultants or most of them. And I ended up taking the whole day and we didn't talk about the strategy, we just talked about the merger, what was happening. I was open as best I could. I was as authentic, as transparent. I was vulnerable. I tried to listen. And, uh, but I'll never forget at the end of that, um, one of the leaders said, we built more trust in one day than we have in the prior year. Again, this had been a brutal year. And, and, um, and it was just because we I just tried to, you know, be transparent, talk straight, take things head on, be real, and, and then listen. And then from that, we created action plans of things we would do to change. And, and, um, and we began to build on that trust we built there and intentionally built in it. And it changed everything. Once we learned to trust each other, then we could perform and do better. But we had to kind of apply our own stuff. And, and that was before we had 
taught trust formally. So it was from that that I realized trust is learnable. But it takes these behaviors of transparency and straight talk and listening and showing respect. You know, a lot of the things I know you did, David, from the stories, some of the stories I tell about you of uh, when you went in at KFC, when there was, you know, low trust with the corporation, the franchisees, and you went in and listened and, and, and said, and then you made the decision, we're going to trust our franchisees. And I kind of had to do the same. I had to listen and then extend trust intentionally to see it come back. And, and, and so from that, I realized trust is learnable. Yeah, fantastic. You know, you, you say that you, that you develop trust through character and competence. Uh, can you talk about a leader who has impressed you with those two traits? Yeah. Um, Eric Yuan, CEO at, uh, at Zoom. You know, Zoom Video Communications that does these great meetings. I mean, they're, they're relatively a new company, a startup. And, uh, but they've developed enormous market share fast. And, and, you know, he's a great thinker with a great idea of how to meet this need with a simple technology. But he's also a person of great character. And his starting point is, you know, like you, David, he starts with trust. He extends trust to people. And his whole premise is he's trying to build Zoom on the basis of trust, both trust internally with each other so they can move fast and be creative and innovative through character and competence, but also external trust with customers and, 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 and partners, and, and he really is intentional about it. And they earn it and they give it. And you know, so he's earned, you gotta earn trust, you gotta give trust, and, it, and you can't just blindly give it, no, it's gotta be based upon character and competence. That's earning trust. Character and competence helps you earn it. He's done it himself, but he also gives it, he extends it as a leader, and that's the differentiator. I know you don't believe in blind trust. Instead, you talk about smart trust. And, and uh, you know, what do you mean by smart trust? And obviously, Eric Ewan is an example of who's built that. Yeah. You know, Eric's a great example. And the whole the whole idea of smart trust is that, you know, there's, there's both some judgment being given. In other words, it's not just indiscriminately trusting anyone and everyone, regardless. That would be blind trust. And it's also not trust without expectations or accountability. So I would say that even my dad with me as a seven-year-old used smart trust. Why? Because he said, look, yeah, he's a young kid, but smart trust is saying, you know, what am I saying trust on? What's the risk involved? What's the credibility of the people or the person involved? And the risk was not that high for my dad. The lawn's yellow, so what? You can live with that. It's not gonna sink a company. And, and, you know, while I was not very credible as a seven-year-old, he thought it was in me that I could learn how to do it. But what made it smart is he trained me for two weeks around results, around our expectations of green and clean, and around accountability towards the expectations of green and clean that I would be accountable once a week to my dad by walking around and showing how green the yard was, how clean the yard was. So he built right into this trust that he gave me clear expectations and an accountability to that. So I judge myself. So that was with a seven-year-old. So, you know, imagine if, as we extend trust as leaders that, you know, instead of hovering over micromanaging people, trust them, but always with clear expectations around the trust we're extending and a process for accountability where they can be accountable around the expectations we've created together. And that way, you don't have to hover over and micromanage them. They come to you saying, I'm going to be accountable. Let me tell you how I'm doing against the expectation, you know, the expectations we agreed upon. And that's smart trust. It's, it's a blind trust to just say, I trust you with no expectations or accountability, or to not use any judgment and extend trust when the risk is too great or someone's not ready. So if I could come back to you, I don't mean I don't mean I know this focus is not on you, David, but but I tell your stories. I've got to tell it when you when you got in it. At KFC, when you made the decision you're going to trust your franchisees, you might have had some pushback from some people saying, wait, we can't trust them. They're untrustworthy. We've kind of proven that. But you're saying, no, it's actually smart to trust them because these are people, they're investing their whole lives, their livelihoods in this franchise. They care. They want to have a successful franchise. And they're good business people. And they've invested money. This matters to them. It's smart 
to trust them. We've created an agreement, so we have expectations. It's smart to extend trust. And so while, while others thought maybe you can't trust the franchisees, you said, no, you can. And it's actually not a wild, blind trust. No, these are good people who have invested everything and we have an agreement, so why not trust them? And by, by leading out with trust, you elicited a reciprocity of trust back versus kind of being trapped in a cycle of distrust where no one trusted anybody. You, you went first and you it was smart trust though, I would argue. So again, it's not a one size fits all, you know, indiscriminate without assessing the situation, the risk, or without expectations or accountability. It's good judgment. And, and uh, what we learned from it, but my main point to leaders everywhere is they need to not just be trustworthy as a leader. That's, that's table stakes. You need to be trusting, willing to extend it, willing to give it. And because you then help people, they perform better, they rise to the occasion and they return it. It's reciprocal. They give it back to you and it becomes a virtuous upward spiral. Like you manifested at KFC years ago and then ultimately at Yum Brands you know, with by trusting your team. Extending trust can be very powerful. Can you give us another story of where you saw a breakthrough business idea that came from extending trust? Well, yes. I, I just was with a, um, a leader of a, of a school, of an education institution. that I have I permission to use his name, Jim Gash, president of Pepperdine. And he comes in and his starting point He's got a dean that he doesn't know. And there was an issue, you know, because he's new president. There's, but he knows, he knows some of the other deans. There was an issue that had come up on tenure that was kind of complicated and it became uh, bubbled up as kind of an issue. And it was going to take a long time to kind of wade through this and discuss it. And, and he went up to this dean and said, look, the dean said, I'd be happy to explain. It's going to take some time. i got to go through this. There's a lot of nuance to it. And again, Jim Gash, brand new leader, said, I just want to know a couple of things. First, does this represent your best thinking, your best work, and your, that of your team, the decision you made? And the, and the dean said, yes, it does. And then he asked, you know, is, was, the, was the process fair for all parties involved? Yes, it was. And then Jim Gash said to the dean, Michael, just move ahead. I trust you. He didn't know him. He was brand new. But but it was a smart trust because he said, I, well, I didn't know Michael. This is Jim Gash. Well, I didn't know Michael. I knew these other deans that did know Michael, and they told me he's gold. Whatever he says, he does. He, you know, he does what he says, you can trust him. And so he extended that trust right out of the gates. I asked Michael, what did that do for you? He said, it inspired me. I wanted to prove worthy of it. But let me tell you what it did for our team and our culture. We're open. We're, we're, we can trust each other. We're creative. We're innovative. Ideas flow. We, we start with trust. And when there's trust, people are not afraid to take a risk, not afraid to make a mistake, not afraid to, to learn. And we learn better. We learn faster. When we're creative, more innovative. And, and, um, and that's what trust does is, it creates the right environment, the right culture for people to be authentic, to be real, to be transparent, and to take a risk. And, and sometimes even to make a mistake and learn and get better. And, you know, the whole Silicon Valley mantra fell fast, you know, fell forward, fell often as long as you're learning because you don't innovate if you're not willing to fail. And you won't take that risk that might risk failure if there's not trust. And so, so trust really is the fertile ground that, that where the innovation takes place because people are not afraid to take a risk. And, and so seeing leaders that lead out with that, extend that, is what then creates that right culture and environment where people say, gosh, with a leader like this, I can, you know, with a culture like this, I can take calculated smart risks and learn and make a mistake and grow and innovate. And so Jim Gash did it, you did it at KFC, uh, Eric Wan, Yuan's doing it at, at uh, Zoom. Many, many others, um, including even uh, in, you know, traditional businesses like, you know, going to Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway and how Buffett extends enormous trust to all these independent businesses he's, he's, he's bought. He doesn't try to micromanage them. They run themselves and he trusts them 
That's why he brought them, brought them in and, and they're innovative, they're creative, but they feel trusted. It just creates the right environment. You know, I know you believe in trusting and positive intentions and, and you just gave some great examples, but sometimes people do let you down. Can you give us a story of what you've done when, when people actually betray your trust, which happens, unfortunately? It does happen. And and um, here's a, I will give you a story. Let me teach you. I'll share a principle. And and that is that that I, I think we got to be careful to make sure that we don't let, I'm going to, you know, the 5% of the people who let us down and betray our trust define for us the 95% who will be inspired by it, who will rise to the occasion, perform better. And yet too often organizations build rules and, and policies around the 5% of the people who they can't trust instead of the 95% of the people who they can. And they penalize the many because of the few. And it's natural because whenever we, you know, we extend trust and get burned, it's very easy to say, hey, I tried trusting, it doesn't work. Got burned, someone let me down, they didn't deliver, they didn't come through. And, and that can happen. And I'll, and I'll go back to this Warren Buffett illustration because, you know, Buffett is a great investor, but he's also a um, a leader because he's, he's acquired all these companies. And a few years ago, he had, you know, some 77 acquired companies. So there's 77 effectively direct reports to Buffett. And, and um, you know, he calls them his all-stars. Well, one of them, one of the 77 let him down. And, you know, you can read about this if you want. It was, you know, a few years ago where one of them kind of got involved in, in, in front running on, on something and it wasn't uh, technically illegal, but it felt unethical, at least the perception was. And, and so Warren Buffett, you know, they let, they let the person go and, and, uh, and, they, and they kind of took steps to do that. But what, what was most significant is Warren didn't let the fact that one of his direct reports let him down, you know, violated maybe the trust that was there, defying how he saw the other 76. He still had the trust in them. He didn't allow the one let down to define the other 76. And that's kind of the key insight and learning is when you have clear expectations and accountability, this is a better way to lead, but there always is a risk. And occasionally someone might fall short, let you down, and you learn from that, and you try to get better around expectations and accountability, and you also try to get better around when you know the smart trust idea that when you are assessing the situation, what am I extending trust on? The risk involved, how risky is it, and the credibility of the people involved. If it's extremely highly risky, and it could sink the whole firm, then you're gonna be really careful about how much trust you give there. You know, but, um, you got to assess that and then the credibility of the people. I'll never forget, David, I, I presented at the all-flag officer conference for the U.S. Navy. This was Admiral Mike Mullen when he was the chief of naval operations. He became the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff right after this. So all the admirals in the world of the U.S. Navy were there, or almost everyone. I talked about speed of trust, and someone said, someone asked, an admiral asked me a question, Stephen, I'm a commander of a nuclear submarine. And we've got protocols to do anything on our boat. Are you suggesting that we should eliminate some of those protocols because it's telling our people that we don't trust them? And I and I said, absolutely not, <laughs> because you've got a nuclear submarine. <laughs> In other words, the risk is so great that it would not be smart at all to kind of not have rules and protocols and regulations for everything, because just too great a risk. You know, so I asked. You know, our listeners, are you dealing with nuclear submarines? <laughs> or are you dealing with, uh, by contrast, you know, newspapers, a, new, a newspaper stand, someone said, you know, America, what a country. You got newspapers, you put a couple quarters in and you pull out the paper, and there's no one there. You could, if I wanted to, I could pull out 20 papers. And I said, yeah, that is trust, isn't it? But, you know, pretty low risk. If someone pulls out 20 papers, I lose a few dollars. If I'm a newspaper operator, if someone did it every day, maybe I move the stand to another place. Very low risk. And so I, I kind of say, what's the risk? Is it nuclear submarines? Is it newspapers? And it's usually somewhere in between. And so you use good judgment and, and you recognize, yeah, you're going to get burned occasionally, but, but 
while there's a risk to trust people, I believe, David, there's a greater risk not to trust people in our world today because you don't, you don't create that synergy and the creativity. And we're really good at measuring the risk of trusting too much and being wrong, making a mistake and saying, gosh, look at the cost. We're not very good at all at measuring the risk of not trusting enough and what that does to people and cultures. You know, I, I follow you, Stephen, on Twitter, and, and I love this tweet that you, you, you did, which is, nothing fails like success. Uh, explain what you mean by that and give us an example. Yeah. Well, the whole idea is that it sounds like a paradox, but, you know, this is, comes from Arnold Toynbee, the historian, says you can des- describe all civilizations, the rise and fall, by that mantra. Nothing fails like success, because what happens is a challenge comes, and and society learns to develop a, an effective response to that challenge, or a company learns an effective response to that challenge. The challenge comes, we've learned a response, it works, that's success. But then what happens is the nature of the challenge changes because of disruption, because of other things. New challenge now, our once successful response that worked so well with the old challenge is no longer relevant for the new challenge. Hence, nothing feels like success. We need a new response for the new challenge. And I think a great way of thinking about this is kind of, is disruption and, and the change. So if you look at Netflix and what they did, well, um, they kind of disrupted uh, Blockbuster. Blockbuster, the great video chain, had 9,000 stores, all based upon kind of a physical model of stores and, 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 uh, and VHS and then DVDs, and you'd go into the store and, and, uh, and return it, and, and they had late fees and all this. It was all part of their business model. And, but everything was moving towards, you know, first mail, DVDs by mail, what Netflix did, and then later streaming. Blockbuster was slow. They, their one successful response, these physical stores, when the challenge changed to a new world of technology enabled by technology with both mail and streaming, they stayed with their own their old response that worked in the past, but doesn't work in the new world. And they didn't disrupt themselves. Netflix actually came to them and said, we'll be your online version. They said, no, they didn't want to disrupt that, you know, lose the success, but they ended up becoming disrupted today. There's one blockbuster store left from 9,000 and Netflix has gone on, you know, first with DVDs by mail, but then they realized they got to change that. They got to disrupt themselves and go into streaming or else they're going to, you know, lose that business like Net, like, like Blockbuster did. And they, they kind of always were just trying to stay at the forefront of the new challenges need require a new response, not just the old once successful response. That's the idea. And the premise is all companies need to be looking at this and staying relevant and all leaders, all of us as leaders, we also need to be looking at the changing landscape and environment and saying, are we learning? Are we responding to this new world and, and such that, you know, we have a new response for the new challenge in front of us. You know, that, that's great. You know, uh, right now I'd like to move to sort of a little fun thing I like to do, which okay. is a lightning round of questions. Uh, what leader do you admire most and, and, and why? So many, but I'm going to say uh, Abraham Lincoln, go historical. I'll tell you why, because, you know, he was able to unite after the most divisive thing imaginable, you know, with malice toward none, with charity for all. That mindset of generosity, that spirit, that mindset is extraordinary. And we need that kind of leadership in our world today. We're so divided. What three words best describe you? Well, maybe this is aspirational, David. So I hope maybe someone might say these describe me. I hope someone would say trusting. I hope someone would say kind. And I, I never believe you can be too kind. And I hope someone would say generous. But what would be your biggest pet peeve? I would say um, arrogance and hubris in, in anybody, in, in, in a leader, especially the, you know, the person that's, I'm the smartest guy in the room. And, and that arrogance and hubris is just felt by all versus the leader that, that tries to surround him, him or herself by people they see as even better than them. Now, if you could trade places with one person for a day, who would it be? Um, I, I would say uh, the current Secretary General of the United Nations. I, mean, I don't even know his or her name right now because of uh, just the, the fact that 
are the challenges in our world and our society and how you would think about that and approach that would be fascinating. Uh, share a random fact about yourself that few people would know. I love musicals, broad, Broadway musicals. And when I'm in New York or London, I make it a point almost every time to go to, to, to plays. And, and I see, and I love musicals, so I've seen all the classics. I bet I've seen Phantom of the Opera and Les Mis probably 30 times each. I've seen, Ham I've seen Hamilton 17 times, which is a lot because it's only been out five years, I think, right? Or four or five years. And I've seen it 17 times. And so, um, yeah, I love musicals and, and most people wouldn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're about to wrap this up. I've got a few questions, uh, but you know, what would be, if you had to summarize, what would be your three bits of, of advice for aspiring leaders? Yeah, I would say this is going to tie back to kind of what I believe, you know, my world is. The first would be that great leadership is getting results in a way that inspires trust. In other words, it's one, you know, you got to get results. You got to perform or it's not going to work, but some people could perform but do it in a way where the, the trust goes down and the capabilities of the people go down. You know, they're killing the goose that lays the golden eggs, if you will. You've got to get results in a way that inspires trust so that your ability to get results the next time has just gone up. You define it, David, as taking people with you. Yes, you got to perform and you got to take people with you. Then your ability to perform has just gone up and you, and you got people that can do it for you and with you because you take them with you. So, for me, it's getting results in a way that inspires trust. That'd be the first. The second is, as a leader, yes, you yourself, clearly you need to be trustworthy. That's the starting point. But you've got to also be trusting. You've got to be willing to extend that trust. And it's back to our whole conversation. Yes, there's a risk. got to be smart about it. But there's a risk to trust and there's a risk not to trust. And I think not trusting is the greater risk in today's world, a collaborative, interdependent world with multiple generations characterized by disruption. And we need change, we need innovation, we need collaboration, and you gotta trust to create that. And third, I would say to try to, as a leader, try to create and tap into meaning, purpose, and contribution so that you're making a difference in the world. And that's even more than mission, vision, and values. Mission, vision, and values are important and companies should have that. And But someone could have mission, vision, and values, and yet the, the people involved might not feel that they're tapping into meaning and tapping into real purpose and, and into contribution. And when you, when, you, when you create and tap into commission, you know, tap into meaning, purpose, and contribution, that inspires people. Great. You know what? Uh I, I'm going to wrap it up with this final question here. And I loved it when you tweeted, whenever possible, finish strong. How do you apply this thought as you think about your future and, and what's next for, for uh, Stephen M. R. Covey? I love this uh, expression by my father. So much of my learnings have come from my father. And he said, live life in crescendo. And the whole idea of, you know, crescendo in music is that you're, all, you're moving up. And the whole idea is that your greatest contribution is always in front of you. You always view that way, that you, know, you live life in crescendo. And so my father, who wrote The Seven Habits, one of the great best-selling books, always felt like his greatest book was still in front of him. It was still out there. And he tried to live that. I look at you, David you know, CEO of Yum Brands, recognized internationally, one of the great CEOs. I believe your next act as the leader of David Novak Leadership and helping teach leadership to people and organizations, I believe this is going to be your greatest contribution. You're going to live life in crescendo. I'm trying to do the same. And, and uh, you know, my focus is on trust. I feel called to do trust. I don't know exactly where this is going to take me, but I believe that my greatest contribution is still in front of me. And so I'm trying to live my life in crescendo, always believing 
then my greatest contribution is in front of me. And I learned that from my father. I'm trying to do that model it myself. Well, you know, Stephen, I really appreciate you taking the time to share some of your insights. Your your book, Speed of Trust, is just phenomenal. Uh, but your passion for the subject just comes through in, in spades. And uh, I'm going to always remember the thought of living living my life in crescendo. And you're certainly doing it. And thank you for, for being with us on this podcast. Thank you so much, David. It's fabulous to be with you. And again, I greatly admire and appreciate you. Thank you. Boy, I just love how Stephen talks about trust. He makes so much sense. As leaders, we tend to think, man, if I trust someone with this project and it goes wrong, it could really cost us. But how often do we think about the cost of not trusting someone? If we look over people's shoulders and require approval at every turn, it's costing us productivity and morale and innovation and all sorts of things. But with Stephen's idea of smart trust, we can empower our people without exposing our business to too much risk. So let's try it. This week, as part of your weekly personal development plan, I want you to find a place to put this idea of smart trust to work in your organization. Look for an area of low risk where there's someone on your team who you think is ready to take on more responsibility. Then come up with some appropriate ways to show that person that you trust them to make the right decisions. Because take it from me, the more you can wire your organization around trust, the faster you can move, the better your results, and the happier your team will be. So do you want to know how leaders lead? What we learned today is that great leaders extend trust the smart way. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of How Leaders Lead, where every Thursday you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I make it a point to give you something simple on each episode that you can apply to your business so that you will become the best leader you can be.